0: Good morning, friends. Happy June. Summer's here, it feels like. A little bit. If we haven't met yet, my name is Thomas. I get to be on staff here at the church. And we're going to start a new series today. And this series is going to be through the whole summer called Unsung Heroes. And we're looking at less familiar stories in the scriptures that demonstrate acts of faith that we can imitate. And that reveal character traits about God that we can trust. And so today we're going to open up in the Old Testament from the book of 2 Kings chapter 5. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to 2 Kings chapter 5. If you've never been to 2 Kings, have no fear. Just open your Bible to the middle in the Psalms and start turning left until you hit 1 and 2 Chronicles. And then comes 1 and 2 Kings. If you hit 1 and Second Samuel, you've gone just a little bit too far and just turn around and go right. So 2 Kings chapter 5 is where we're going to See, our unsung hero today. And before we begin this morning or before we begin this whole series this summer, let's just pause as a church. Give thanks to the Lord for carrying us through James. Solomon did a wonderful job last week ending James, did he not? And yeah, we'll give Solomon a hand. And then we just want to dedicate this summer and just dedicate the teachings that he's going to have for us to shape us as men and women who follow him. So, Father, we come before you and we give you thanks. We give you thanks for this last season in which you have carried us through. We thank you for the teachings through the book of James. We pray that they would be in our mind and in our heart. They would continue to be formational in us. And then, Father, as we turn to the summer and we begin to look at stories that maybe we're less familiar with, would you give us eyes to see faith and ears to hear what your character is like, that we would trust you more. And so, Lord, we just commit the next several months that, Lord, would you be willing to continue to shape a congregation of people to look like your son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. 2 Kings chapter 5. Not sure how familiar you are with this story, but it's about a mighty general by the name of Naaman. Chapter 5 verse 1 Naaman commander of the armies of the king of Syria it means like he's the top dog if there is a warrior to be found in the country of Syria it is this man Naaman was a great man with his master and in high favor because of him the Lord had given victory to Syria that's in over Israel. What's happened is over the years, the kings of Israel have become more and more corrupt. And the leadership of Israel, the priests of Israel, have perverted justice and have brought in the things of the world that the world really admires, the things that the world worships. And they have brought that into the temple of God where only God should be worshiped. And they've turned the hearts of the people to worship the things of the world instead of the living God. And so God has brought judgment By neighboring countries on Israel because they will not listen to the prophets and turn their heart back to the Lord. And so some of these raids have begun to bring the judgment of God into the northern kingdom of Israel, which will ultimately culminate in their exile from the land. And Naaman is an instrument of God's judgment on Israel's rebellion, perverted justice, and worship of idols. And so Naaman comes in, this mighty warrior, and God has given him the victory. Because of his judgment. He was a mighty man of valor, the scriptures say. Like he's the dude's dude. I mean, like you've seen the movie Gladiator. Gladiator ain't got nothing on Naaman. Except one thing. There's a note here. But, but, he was a leper. So sometime in Naaman's military campaign, in his career, when he was rising in fame. I mean, just destroying other armies, pillaging and plundering and being very successful for the kingdom of Syria. At some point, he was taking off his armor, laying down his shield, putting down his sword, taking off his breastplate, setting down his helmet, and he noticed something. There was a spot. and He wiped it, and it didn't go away. And he took water, and he tried to wash it, but it didn't go away. He took the best medical care of the day, oils and ointments, and he put it on his skin, and he covered it back up so that no one would see it, but it didn't go away. It just spread, and he would put it under his armor, and he would go out, and everyone saw him as the man of valor, this mighty man of war, but they didn't know there was something growing on him that was unseen, that would kill him. Leprosy is a death sentence at this time. There's no medical treatment for it. And so just the smallest spot beginning to grow determined his fate that he would die. Die a painful death as his skin corroded off his body. And so maybe it was a week, maybe it was a month, I don't know, but finally he's going to do something About it. And so in chapter 5, verse 2, now the Syrians on one of their raids had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel. And she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, Would that my Lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria? He would cure him of his leprosy. So Naaman went in and told his Lord thus. And so spoke the girl from the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, Go now and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So finally he has to come clean. There's nothing he can do about it. All of his tactics, all of his efforts, all the best treatments of the day have failed. And finally he has to tell his king that he is going to die unless something is done. And this king doesn't have anything for him either. But he respects him so much. He's so important to the king. The king sends him to Israel. You're going to see him send him not only with a letter, but with great wealth. So he went, taking with him ten talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothing. Clothing is very expensive during this day. If you would take all this wealth, it basically accumulate to 600 laborers' annual salaries. Is what Naaman's going to the king of Israel with. This is how important this man is to the king of Syria. What a man of valor. And so he shows up in Israel before the king. Verse 6, and he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, When this letter reaches you, know that I have sent to you Naaman, my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. And when the king of Israel read the letter, this is his response. He tore his clothes. This is in grief and sorrow. He tore his clothes and said, am I God? Like, what am I going to do about this? Am I God to kill and to make alive? That this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy. I and mean, the king knows leprosy kills people, and he has no cure for it. And this last line points out that the king is suspicious of what's going on. He says, only consider and see how he is seeking a quarrel with me. This must be some sort of military tactic or scheme of war. He can't quite figure it out, but surely he can't really mean that I'm responsible to cure something in this man that no one in the world knows how to cure. But there is the prophet, Elijah, who hears of this. Verse 8, but when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent to the king saying, why have you torn your clothes? I, I just love Elisha. Like calm, cool, collected. Like, what are you doing? Like you're embarrassing us all. Like you're the king. Get it together, man. He says, so what did you tear your clothes for? Let him come now to me that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him saying, go and wash in the Jordan seven times and your flesh shall be restored and you shall be clean. So here's Naaman. All this gold, all this silver, all this clothes. What an entourage he shows up with. Imagine him just arriving at your house and you don't even go out to meet him. You just say, get one of the servants of the house, one of the workers here, and just send him out to go meet this man of valor. How do you think Naaman responds? Poorly. Yeah, poorly. Verse 11, but Naaman was angry. Why do we get angry? Injured pride. Injured vanity. I mean, here's this man who wouldn't be questioned in Syria. Now he's in Israel. Ugh, Israel, he thinks. Now he's at the prophet's door, and this mighty prophet doesn't even come out? This is injured vanity, pride that's been wounded. And so he's angry, and he went away saying, like, he gets out of there. This is, this is silly. If he's not even going to come out and meet me, I'm out of here. Does that sound like a prideful person? Absolutely. He says, behold, I thought. This is what I thought. Because If I'm going to get healed, then this is how it should go down. If I, I was thinking that this is how this whole scenario would go down, but I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and, you know, wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Like, come on, I, I imagined, I mean, I've seen some things like this done, but he would come out because I'm, I'm naming. And then he'd show up and he'd like do some theatrical things, like be super spiritual and do some amazing stuff. And then it would be cured. But that's not how it went down. He says, "Are not Abna and Farbar the rivers of Damascus better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? Like, okay, even if I was going to do what he said, like this washing—I mean, come on—I've already washed. It doesn't he realize I've already done these things? And if I'm going to wash with water, why would I wash from the Jordan? That's like a." dirty river. There's better rivers back home. I mean, clean springs, like these beautiful rivers in Damascus. Why wouldn't he send me back there? At least I would wash with clean water. Why am I going to jump in the Jordan? And so he's still trying to determine how he'll get healed. He's still a prideful man. And so, he says, so he turned and went away in rage. Now it went from anger to to rage. He's infuriated. It says, but his servant came near and said to him, my father, it is a great word the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? He has actually said to you, wash and be clean. Your NIV or maybe your King James translates this: if he would have said doing something great, would you not have done it? Like if he would have come out and said, here's what you need to do. I need the skins of three goats from the top of the mountain of Smordorf. Will you go? Like, yes, I will go there. And I will go with my sword and I'll defeat the dragon. I mean, it's like if he would have said to do something great, which would stoke your ego, which would not challenge your pride, which would allow you to participate in some way of like, I earned this. Would you not have gone and done it? All he's asking you to do is go down to the Jordan and wash six times. What's Naaman's real disease is is pride. Is it not? He's a narcissist. And you know what? Healing his leprosy isn't going to happen when he does a great act of valor. Nor if if he gets healed on his own terms going to Damascus. No, this is you humble yourself by the ways in which God has provided his grace for you. So you come before God and say, I come on your terms, not my own. I'll be healed the way you have made a provision to heal me, not as I think it should go. And so, listening to his servant, verse 14, so he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan according to the word of the man of God. Now, the Bible often refers to this number seven. It's this holy number, which is completeness, fulfillment, fullness. He does it seven times. Can you imagine Naaman? He goes down there. He's like, this is so dumb. (laughs) anyone watching? He like puts his toe in it. They're like, all the way under. So he gets all the way under, comes up one time. He's like, still there. Does it a second time. Still there. This is so. I, I'm out of here. I mean, this man is filled with anger and rage. He does it a third time, nothing. Fourth time, nothing. Now he's like, okay, well, I'm already over the halfway mark. I should probably just finish up here. Five and six, and nothing. And then, according to the word of God, the provision that God has laid out for him, God's terms, not his. He dunks a seventh time. And what's the result? The result, he says, was restored. Not just like the spot gone, but it was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. That's that's being healed to the completeness, healed to the fullness the seventh time. It's not like just, and then the spot disappeared. Is that his skin? was made like a child, like a newborn babe's skin. His body was completely healed. And this is his response in verse 15. Then he returned to the man of God, he and all his company, and he came and stood before him. And this is what Naaman knows now. And he said, behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth, in all the earth, but in Israel. I have just had an encounter with the living God, the one who made me. The one who just healed me is the only God in all of the world. I've never heard of someone being healed of leprosy. I've never seen this before. And yet by the prophet's words, God has healed me. Now notice he doesn't attribute the healing to the prophet. The prophet's not the healer. God is. The prophet's just the spokesman of of where healing is found. And so Naaman, the Syrian general, becomes a worshiper of God and returns home as a worshiper of the living God. Not just his skin healed, but his soul as well. He's turned to the Lord. He submitted his life to the Lord, you'll find out, if you continue to read the story. But Naaman isn't the unsung hero. You thought the whole time we were talking about Naaman. No, you look at Naaman like, why... Why would he be the hero? It's, it's Elisha, right? No, it's not Elisha. Naaman gets healed because the unsung hero in the story told him where to go get healed. Who's the unsung hero? It's the slave girl. Look back at verse 2. Now the Syrians, on one of their raids, had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel. She's a product of war. Just imagine her suffering for a moment. I mean, she's been ripped from her family. By the, she's gone from her mom and her dad, brothers and sisters perhaps, all the family members, her home. Now she's living with this man who's the commander of the armies that robbed her from her family. How do you think her heart feels towards this man? How would your heart feel towards him? How about how would your heart feel towards this man who's done this to you, and you find out he has a death sentence? Leprosy is growing on him. I mean, you're the servant in the house, and the whispers of the house who haven't left the house have landed on your ears. You know what's going on. You see your enemies' vulnerability, their suffering. And in our hearts, we might say something like, good, I hope he dies. Good, I'm so happy to hear this, leprosy. I hope he suffers the way that he has caused me to suffer. I hope he has a slow, painful death. But she doesn't. She's truly a daughter of God. She has the heart of God in her. And she sees his suffering. And by an act of genuine love for him, tells his wife, I know the living God in Israel can heal him. She loves him enough that she'll tell him the only source of life. Like she's going to heal, she's going to bring healing to her enemy, the one who has robbed her from her life. This is how her heart reflects the heart of God. Jesus makes this most clear. On his teaching on the mount, he went through so many things of what is the kingdom ethic? Like if you're going to belong to the family of God, how does the family of God live in the world? What kind of heart do we have? What kind of actions do we have? How do we treat people? And Jesus just clarifies a misteaching of the religious people who called themselves followers of God. This is Matthew chapter 5. In Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Like, God never really said that whole phrase. God said, love your, eni- or love, sorry, love your neighbor, and people probably started filling in, but, and then hate your enemy. And Jesus has to clarify, that's not the kingdom ethic of the people of God. You've heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons or daughters or children of your father who is in heaven. If you're going to be offspring, if you're going to look just like your dad, you got to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. See, this little girl who's not even named causes this story to be remembered and be a signpost of what Jesus came to ultimately do. See, The whole story is a signpost of what God was ultimately going to do through his son, Jesus Christ. So when Jesus shows up, and he's in Samaritan, Samarian villages, and he's healing people who have leprosy, and he's telling them, you are physically clean, and your sins are forgiven. Like this physical healing was just a signpost of a greater healing that Jesus would bring. He would bring an ultimate healing of our sins, which causes death. To us. Yeah, leprosy might kill our bodies, but sin will eternally kill our souls. And so, this whole story is set up to, to tell two things that God ultimately heals our greatest sickness, which is our sin, and He does it for those we think are our enemies. You see, this little girl reflects the true heart of God, that's the heart of Jesus. There's a New Testament writer by the name of Paul, and he writes this letter to a church in Rome. And this is exactly what he tells us about the timing of Christ's arrival and his work. This is Romans chapter 5, verse 6. Just says, for while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. When did Jesus show up and die? When you were like looking good? When I, was, when I had it all together? No, at the right time, when I was totally falling apart. At my weakest moment is when Jesus shows up. For one one will scarcely die for a righteous person. Like someone might lay their life down. Like a mother might lay her life down for her children. Though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, sick with sin, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved from him By him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. When did Jesus die for me? When I was his enemy. When did Jesus die for you? When you were his enemy. What does this little girl's heart reflect? The heart of God. Isn't that beautiful? Like she could have had this heart of hate and animosity towards him. But instead she has the heart of God that says, I know where you can be healed. You got to go meet the living God that you would be healed, that you would be saved. Do you have a heart like that? It can only come from the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. I I can't love like that in my flesh. Only God can give me a heart like that. Only God can give you a heart like this that loves your enemy, prays for them, that seeks their healing. It doesn't mean that you just excuse all of their hurts that they've caused you in your life. It doesn't mean that they don't matter or that you make them small. It means that you want them to have an encounter with the living God. That you see them for who they are in their weakness, in their vulnerability. And you don't wish ill on them. You wish that they would have an encounter with the living God. Let me ask you this. Who who in your life right now has really hurt you? Who in your life right now, like when you hear their name, when you see their face, like really bothers you? That if you, heard, if you heard that things in life weren't going so well for them, like maybe their family was starting to fall apart, they lost their job, they were in economic ruin, they got caught up in some habits, they were really discouraged or depressed, you'd be like, good, good. I hope they suffer like they've made me suffer. See, this morning's teaching, the unsung hero is the one that teaches us The heart of God. That even those people who make it hard for us, maybe even persecute us as Christians, our response as children of the Father, as offspring of the kingdom, living out the kingdom ethic, is I want them to have a encounter with the living God. That they would be healed and saved. See, so many times with Christians it's like, yeah, we want grace for us, but not for Not for them. And the Lord corrects that in us. He says, you know what, at the point in which you're almost offended by God's grace, like does God's grace really go that far? When you start getting offended that God's willing to heal those people, you're starting to get grace. You're starting to get it. And that's the same grace that I needed in my life. See, this whole story is a foreshadow of what Jesus ultimately came to do. This is the gospel. This is why Paul opens up his letter to the Romans by saying, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, the the, the saving work of Jesus Christ. For it is the power of salvation. First for the Jew, that's Israel, and then to the Gentile. Gentile just simply means those outside of Israel. Those like Naaman, you and me. That's the power of the gospel. And in Romans chapter 15, we see that this has always been the work that God's been trying to accomplish and ultimately got accomplished in his son, Jesus. Chapter 15, verse 8, For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised. That's a title for Israel. To show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. The guy was making good on everything he promised throughout history. And in order that the Gentiles, those outside of Israel, that's you and me, the the rest of the world, might glorify God for his mercy. As it's written, like it goes back to the prophets and the psalmists, as it's been written, this is always the heart of God. It wasn't exclusively to sit in Israel. Therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again, it says, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come. That's a title for Jesus. Even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him, the Gentiles, the world, will hope. What's this little story of the unsung hero teach us? About God's character. God's character is a heart for the world. The world would be saved from their sin and be brought into the family of God. What does this story of faith from this girl teach us? There might be a time in your life when maybe even those who have hurt you the most are going to reveal to you their deepest wounds. Perhaps you'll become aware of their leprosy, their weaknesses. The chink in their armor. I know we all walk around like we have it together. We've got, we're all like bronzed out. We're all beautiful on the outside. But every single one of us has a wound. And perhaps someone in your life will make you aware of that. And the heart of this servant girl teaches us. The heart of Jesus teaches us. In that moment, what's our response? Is love. It is to say, I, I don't wish evil on you. Even though you've caused evil in my life, I don't wish more evil in yours. I want you to know where that can be healed. You have to have an encounter with the living, true God. What an unsung hero, not even named in the story. But Naaman doesn't experience any healing. And God doesn't get more glory of the story unless she speaks up. And the question is are we. Willing to do the same to the people in our life. A willing to share the hope of Jesus Christ, the gospel, that can save the vilest amongst us. For God came and died for us while we were still enemies. And to change us from being enemies to being called beloved sons and daughters of God. Today's Communion Sunday and that's what we remember at the Lord's table. This is what the Lord has established for us in the remembrance of his work on the cross. That Christ came to die for his enemies, to forgive his enemies of their sin against him. That they would be fully forgiven of everything they have done in the past, are doing in the present, and would do in the future. So that they would be righteous, meaning right before God. We've been brought into his family. And so if you're helping to serve communion, would you come forward now... And take your places here in the front.